Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So this week's guest is Damon Centola. He is professor in the Annenberg School for Communication, the School of Arts and Sciences, and the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at the University of Pennsylvania. He directs the Network Dynamics Group and is a senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics. His latest book is Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. We had a fun conversation that started off with a lot about his childhood growing up in an intentional Quaker community. Then uh, we learned a little bit about the influence of uh, his sort of curriculum in undergraduate as a classicist, how Heidegger changed his life, transitioning from philosophy and sociology to uh, getting into network science at really the perfect time. And then all the academic ideas that became the book uh, that has been released re- recently, Change. So, yep, it was a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Without any further ado, here is Damon Santola. And uh, so did you, did you grow up in Vermont? Uh, no, I actually grew up outside of Philadelphia. Okay, so you grew up outside of Philadelphia. What was your, what was your family like growing up? Um, we lived in, um, uh, at least for a good chunk of the time, um, in a Quaker community. Um, it's like an intentional community, which uh, more or less was a commune. Um, and uh, that's part of that. I think the, one of the things is coming out in the, the media because people are always interested in where the new book comes from. Because I'm writing about, you know, change and the dynamics by which uh, new um, and uh, challenging social norms and ideas sort of come to the foreground. Um, and that's in many ways, you know, the, the sort of origin story for a lot of this is that I grew up around a lot of people who are working for social change, for race and gen- gender equity, for um, the end of nuclear pro- uh, proliferation, for, um, you know, all kinds of sort of uh, social change and, and environmental issues, um, and sort of watched over the years while some of them caught in the mainstream and other ones sort of fell flat. Um, and that, in many ways, was sort of part of my original interest in wondering whether those things could be studied scientifically, um, and if so, how you know how effective and predictive our science could be. Um, and so, yeah, that that sort of beginning of my life tells tells a lot about you know why I went into this particular field as opposed to you know the other fields that are like mathematical, social science, like economics, or the new sort of area of physics that studies these same kinds of dynamics from a different perspective. Sociology ultimately attracted me the most as a, as a place where I could study kind of the, what I think of as like the deep questions of social change in a way that is, you know, really scientifically rigorous. Yeah, sure. Um, so it, I, I, before we get into formal sociology and that sort of stuff, I want to know a little bit more about the, the Quaker upbringing. So were your parents religious? How did they end up there? What was, what did, tell me more about that, what, what that looked like. Yeah, uh, so a lot of people confuse Quakerism with like Mormonism. Um, so w- the Quakers are uh, relatively ecumenical in their approach. Which essentially, um, the community was non-denominational, um, non-sectarian, um, interracial, interreligious, and um, it was founded uh, just around 1940 by Jews who had escaped from uh, Germany during you know Hitler's reign. Um, and they, they founded it with this sort of intention of creating a space where pre- pretty much, you know, um, all were welcome. Um, but there was one, I think, uh, um, 
you know, boundary or, or sort of um, rule, and that rule was like tolerance. So families had to sort of be interested in being part of this community, which was, I mean, once you live in other places like uh, Vermont, what you see is that it's, it was very much like a kind of Vermont town <laughs> where there's like town meeting and everyone comes, and they kind of weigh in on, you know, issues of the day. And there's sort of a, a sense of, um, you know, equal respect for all persons, everyone has a voice and they collectively make decisions. And that, you know, by and large, are these sort of, you know, Quaker principles. Um, and so uh, that was an interesting upbringing because um, we were there in the 1970s and 80s. Um, that's not really where the mainstream of, of US culture was, right? The 80s were like the Reagan years. So it was, you know, make money, <laughs> uh, get a success as fast as possible. And that, you know, the culture largely supported that kind of, you know, ethos. Um, and I was living in a community that was, you know, really based on this ideas of, you know, tolerance and equality and sharing. Um, and those ideas, interestingly, have become more of the mainstream now, right? The sort of those, those sort of principles are, are more what we see in the news and, and in sort of uh, our media and also in our um, entertainment. So, you know, some of those things like multiculturalism became uh, almost bromides, you know, by, by the turn of the millennium. Um, but, you know, I grew up with them in a time when like that wasn't how people were talking or thinking, you know, so it was it was just kind of a different uh, exposure and culture than, than I would say the mainstream at that point. So you can definitely fit that into your narrative of your life as you as you understand it now. And I think that makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, but what, uh, you know, when you were a kid growing up in it, did you like being a part of that community? Do you think, hey, this is cool. I like this. Or were you like, man, give me the hell out of here. Oh, I don't think kids reflect on it that much. I mean, I just it just seemed it was just my life. You know? <laughs> um, no, there's no get me the hell out of here because it's not. Um, I did some sort of, sort of, you know, casual ethnographic data collection in my like when I was 19 or early 20s, 1920, um, where, I where I traveled around um, to uh, this is like my first year of college in the summer. And I went around to different places that were these kinds of um, that were actually more like communes that have been set up in the in the U.S. and outside that had this kind of intentional community structure to it. And one thing that really caught my attention, it was actually my first uh, writing. I was a, you know, in philosophy at the time, but one of my first sort of writing um, uh, uh, experiments in, in, I guess, what would later be sociology um, was sort of documenting what these different places were and how they sort of ran. And one thing I noticed was that um, the community I grew up in basically was just, it was like a homestead, you know, like very like a, like very much like a Vermont town. Like everyone lived there. They were all part of town meeting. They all, like on Saturdays, everyone went and like helped clean the local pool. Like they would, you know, maintain a soccer field, right? Um, that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, that was like community service that you did because you lived there and because everyone's a citizen. That all seemed very normal to me. But of course, you know, we all went to school at normal places. Everyone worked at normal places. Like, so there was this kind of, you know, very thin boundary with the rest of the world. Um, and so, of course, it was, I knew that everyone I went to like, you know, elementary, middle school with didn't spend their Saturday afternoons doing like chores for the community. Um, but when we did, of course, there are lots of other kids who lived there. So it was just kind of like what we do. We all help out, you know, for the community. And then, you know, as you get older and older, you realize that what, what that really is, is just civic mindedness. This is growing up in a place and there's plenty of towns across the country where like people have a sense of civic mindedness. They just, you know, dedicate time and energy to the, the people in the community in a very like normal way. 
Um, I would say the only difference is that in the community I grew up in, it was a little bit more intentional. Everyone knew that that was kind of the, the sort of structure they moved into. Um, and, you know, you need to pay extra taxes to live there to help support that community and, and things like the pool and the swimming lessons and all that stuff. Um, but again, I think it's not that different than, than many kinds of communities that, that had sort of arranged those things all by themselves. Um, it was just that there was also this, this added sense of like principles, like we're doing this in a principled way. You know, we, we value certain um, things. So you never heard like bigoted language ever, you know. Um, whereas when you went to middle school, you would hear those kinds of things, right? Um, and so that those are the moments where it became clear that like there are differences. Um, and so no, I never felt like, you know, I I don't want a part of it. It was just you're just kind of noticing that like whatever we later call as adults, we refer to as culture. As a kid, you're just noticing that like people talk differently <laughs> at school and when you're you know in in that other space and you go to other people's houses, then you know, what, what I see every day in, you know, where I live. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's all really interesting. I have, I have one more question about this before we move on to, you know, formal academic training, that sort of stuff, which is, you know, so I don't, I don't actually know anything about your family and that sort of stuff, but do you ever think about having your family live in an intentional community like you grew up in and that sort of stuff? Did you, did you consider Yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting to look because obviously the, the generation I grew up with are, you know, all, uh, married and have kids and and live you know various places around the world um and uh and one of the sort of pet projects of mine is just you know obviously keeping track of my friends from when i grew up but like noticing how many of them decided to move back to that community um and how many of them just you know said well that was great we lo i love that childhood um you know we're giving that to our children here in this other place and you know it kind of depends on your life like a lot of a lot of those people moved to new york and became kind of new yorkers in which case they're not going to move back <laughs> There's no way you're going to get them out of New York City, you know. Um, but what I did notice is that a lot of them put, uh, when they wherever they kind of set up shop with their families, um, they put a lot of energy into the community. Um, they put a lot of um, uh, time into like building these these friendships and and having events and building a kind of sharing space. And you know, their neighbors are just regular neighbors who happen to live in the same area. But there's like people love that, right? People get engaged, and then there's this sense of everyone wants to chip in and help out and and you get a very kind of rich you know little community culture um among among you know a bunch of set of households so um you know my experience is that most families you know most of the, my people from my generation haven't moved back somehow um but uh and some haven't actually gotten like very involved in like you know in in community leadership and helping make make decisions about you know various kinds of things about like water lines and sewer and like all the kinds of things that have to be decided with any you know area um on like a, a power grid um but uh but i would say that everyone has sort of maintains that and the contrast that i was mentioning about this from my little uh, you know exploration of other different kinds of communities in the u.s abroad is that one of the reasons i think that like a lot of the communes that kind of popped up in the 60s and 70s failed is because they were like weirdly re religious and self-contained they were like really communes um, where people like live there, they all harvested the land together, and then everyone had like a, a shared, basically religion, like a shared, com like complete, you know, worldview. Um, and I always felt super uncomfortable when I visited those places. And I was like, oh, okay, so what I grew up in was basically just a, you know, it's just a town, but it had like a town with principles, and that's it, you know. 
So it sounds like, in summary, you grew up in a nice uh, little place that wasn't fantastically, you know, uh, uh, weird, and except for just having a lot of people who cared about the community in which they grew up in and eventually moved on to. That sounds Yeah, and you, had to, you just remember that, that in that day great. and age, that was, yeah. you had to be, I, the, the word people use is intentional community, and the reason that's an appro- more appropriate word, you know, terminology than commune, is because in that day and age, um, that's not how the vast majority of Americans made their home buying decisions, right? You choose somewhere that's like close to work, it's pretty, it's attractive, the house has good value. It's this kind of like personal slash economic decision. But the idea of like moving into a community with like rules, like you had to show up at certain monthly meetings and had to participate, right? Like that idea is just most Americans felt would be like, that's weirdly constraining, you know, like, why do I personally have to help maintain the community cool? Like, don't I just pay someone? And it was like to everyone who moved into there was like, no, that's part of our responsibility, right? So that it's it's just a matter of principle, I think, at that level. So you, as far as I can tell, went to a college that as of last year no longer exists. Is right. That- Right. Is that correct? Yeah. That's Marlboro College. Um, yeah. uh, what? What? I, I didn't. I didn't look into that. What, what's the story there? What happens? Uh, uh, I think solvency was the story. Yeah. Um, so uh, I originally I went to St. John's first, which is a classics program um, that you may or may not know of. They have two campuses: one in Santa Fe, New Mexico; one in um, Annapolis. Uh, and that's uh, that's the, basically the great books. There's like Mortimer J. Adler's like great books program um, where you you know you start with day one and class one is Homer, right? And then you read the Iliad and then you read you know uh, Plato and Aristotle and you read them in the Greek in the Greek, right? As a way of like internalizing the the weight of the classics. Um, and then you know year two you move into sort of you know the Romans and then you get into the you know the, the Germans in year three and then. Um, so you get into this sort of this evolution of, you know, um, Western culture. Um, and uh, I transferred out of there because one thing you can't do in that kind of program is do your own original research. Um, it really is a classics program in the sense that what you're in do- in doing is you're internalizing the, the majesty of the kind of great works of Western, Western um, art, science and literature. And, um, and there's huge value in that. But if you're a natural born researcher that's, you know, you sort of chomping at the bit to do some original thinking. Um, and uh, and Marlboro was interesting at the time because it was like this, this really curious program that had been set up um, that was more like a PhD program um, where I think it had been originally founded like on the GI Bill for GIs who were coming back or slightly older who wanted to do something, you know, quite serious and didn't need kind of the regular routine of an undergrad. Um, and so it was small and the faculty were engaged in like one-on-one mentorship, you know, on research projects with the students, like from the get-go. So it was like a very small focused research oriented school. Um, and so, you know, that seemed coming from a classics program that seemed really appealing. And, uh, um, you know, I wound up, you know, taking full advantage of that. I spent, I think two and a half years just digging into, um, to Heidegger's being in time. That was like my um, my sort of uh, focus for years, uh, reading that and everything that had been written on it. Um, and it was very much like writing, you know, we, the most undergrads there produced like a 200, 300 page dissertation um, on, and that's their undergraduate thesis. Um, so it prepares you for graduate school in many ways that's, you know, unusual. 
Um, but you really have to be ready and, and want that kind of um, study and design. But the thing is that that's not, I mean, it's only a useful model for school if you've got a population of students who are ready to do that kind of work. Um, and I think that that, you know, that was the issue is that there was, you know, the demand side was just, you know, dissipating. Um, that was one of the, the signatures yeah. of the GI Bill was that uh, because all those students coming back from the war, they were older, they were more motivated, they were more right. experienced, that sort of stuff. And so they came to campus ready to kick ass, which, yeah. you know, if you ever met an 18 year old college student, that's, you know, that's like maybe top 10 uh, uh, you know, uh, of their, of their concerns, that sort of stuff. Uh, so I can see how that was a model that made sense if it was founded in response to that, uh, that maybe lost some of its momentum in the 21st century. It's a, it's a generous way of saying, it. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, uh, that's cool. And so I guess was philosophy just, was that like, okay, I'm transitioning out of the classics. What do I think is interesting? Uh, you know, I only made it as far as the Germans in, uh, you know, classics school. So now I'm going to uh, just home in on that. What is, what, what? Oh, no, that was a, it was a really conscious decision because I felt like there was, uh, it was really clear to me what, um, you know, when I was reading the classics, what, what things just jumped out at me. Um, Two of them in the particular, being and time. <laughs> right. Yeah, which turned out to be one thing in the end. Turns out, <laughs> Spoiler alert! Uh, yeah, right. For those who haven't God, read just it, just give away you know, the ending. Exactly. Just, I just saved you a year of your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that and one of the, I think the most uh, impressive things about the classics program is the way they taught the sciences. Because instead of doing what we do today, which is to say, okay, this is what we know, and then we can kind of look back and read some classic texts, then you know, this is kind of how we got here. Classic texts, to my mind, don't really land in that context. Um, what they do, um, and it's, you know, for someone at, you're, you're at Oxford, right? Um, for someone at Oxford, this should be familiar. What they do is they sort of read the classic text, but, you know, in context, which is to say, um, you don't get, you know, modern physics. You just sort of read Aristotle's physics on its own, right? And say, well, how do these intuitions work? Do they make sense? Are they grounded? Um, and Aristotle's work, like on bio, biology, is some of it is fantastically insightful, and some of it is, you know, uh, uh, you know, bizarrely speculative. And then you get into, you know, Galen and Galen sort of, you know, um, challenges to Aristotle and new insights and so forth. And what you see over the course of, you know, when you read Pascal, you go on the roof of the building, you get like a 32-foot tube, and you measure water pressure, right? You do the original experiments that. Um, those thinkers were doing and see what they were seeing and sort of understand the inferences they were making and why they made certain inferences. And partly what it does is give you that kind of great thinkers intuition and appreciation, which is some of the, I mean, some of the leaps that they made given the tools they were using are just phenomenal. Like the ability to infer, you know, general sort of features of the universe from, you know, just these simple experiments and also the cleverness of some of their designs. Um, and that always stuck with me as something that was very important in thinking about what, you know, what advances knowledge and what advances science. Um, but reading certain books like Aristotle's Politics were, was, were just, you know, explosive for me because they just kind of awakened a whole sort of dormant part of my brain, with, you know, thinking through some of these sort of deeper issues of societal structure in such a rigorous and powerful way. Um, and I think when I read, uh, when I moved to Marburg and, and just took a class and read Hart, you know, Heidegger's Being at Time, it was, 
again, one of those moments where, you know, when you talk about the, the best books you've ever read or most influential books, um, there was this phenomenal epiphany about like what could be done with philosophy. If we, you know, if we pushed it beyond the sort of, you know, the, the sort of the standard approach of, you know, natural language philosophy and, and um, some of the, the sort of, um, you know, work on semantics and the work on pragmatics into a sort of a way of just fully appreciating what, you know, what is and what isn't. Um, you realize that there's there's a lot of really interesting thinking that can be done if if you can sort of harness it inside like a good intellectual system. And that just was like overwhelmingly compelling to me. Um, so yeah, that that was just motivated by like sheer pure intellectual interest. Yeah. You know? And then so you graduate from uh, Marlboro, and then what happens? Is there a break between that and when you start in on your sociology graduate career? Um, not so much a break as I went to. So I came out of there and I had a couple of different options. One was to go to medical school, um, and the other one was to um, go to the University of Chicago, which is a, a graduate program that is sympathetic to the kind of work I did as an undergrad, which is say, uh, philosophy, if you don't know, is divided into essentially warring camps. Um, and if you're at Oxford, you probably know that there's the tradition of analytical philosophy. It's like basically natural language philosophy. You know, Wittgenstein is in this tradition, but so is like Klein, Carnap, and, and most of what we do in America is in this sort of British tradition. And then there's, you know, the continental tradition, which is the kind of big think, dense language, you know, what is it all about? What does it all mean type philosophy? And like, you know, Hegel, uh, Kant, Heidegger are all in this tradition. Um, and they are called analytic and continental philosophy accordingly. Um, and it's basically gang warfare, basically you know, two sides who sort of dug in, they all talk to each other. And, um, you know, pretty much right around the time that Heidegger is writing, they're still talking to each other. But in the, the, in the next decade or two, the conversation stops and it becomes like just, you know, you're, you're, you're choosing a side. So having done, you know, this extensive undergraduate work in Heidegger, I was sort of cast into the continental camp. Um, and uh, and so Chicago would have been a friendly place to that. But then Tufts University um, had started a master's program for people who are coming, had never really done analytic philosophy, um, and are coming either from the sciences or really from any background, um, to do a kind of two-year, very intensive, um, like mini undergrad degree in analytic philosophy. That's like the, you know, Dan Dennett was there. He's a, he's a real, I mean, if you work in psychology, you probably know Dan Dennett. I mean, the, uh, the a, name of the show is Cognitive Evolution. Uh, yeah, so Dan you know, Dennett has come maybe up you heard of him. once yeah, or twice exactly. yeah, throughout exactly. the show as well as my own life. So there, yeah, you know. um, so, um, and that in many ways that kind of epitomizes a lot of the thinking that was going on. That was very Quinean, very Rawlsian, like, the, you know, the kind of, um, you know, Cambridge USA version of, you know, what, what philosophy is. Tufts, um, so I went Tufts there is in Somerville, I believe. Uh, What's that? Tufts, I believe is in Somerville. Strictly Somerville. Speaking. Yeah. But, right. But a lot of the info, the, the Quine and Rawlsian. <laughs> Quine, Quine was a little bit further south in, in, in Cambridge. Yeah. Um, in Cambridge. No, but what I mean is that the, the sort of the, the, the context we were in was like, it was very much kind of the, the, the great Harvard, like Putnam, Quine, Rawls, like 100%. the Harvard yeah. school of, um, philosophy was hugely influential there, largely because most of the faculty were students of those people. Hello, Cody here. If you're hearing this, then my guest and I probably just finished talking about the books that have most influenced their way of thinking. This is always one of my favorite questions. 
One reason is because a person's favorite books, or a smattering of the ones that come to mind at any rate, is such an interesting portrait of the way they think. But it's also a great way to find new books. There are so many books out there, especially new ones. And let's face it, not every one of them is going to really change the way you think about anything important. One of the most effective ways to find those high-value titles is to read the things that have been most impactful to the people you admire or look up to. Speaking personally, after interviews, I often find myself ordering the books we talked about or other books by the author that I may not have read prior to our conversation. And so I've started compiling book lists based on each episode of Cognitive Revolution. Each list collects a few of the books we talked about, a couple other titles by the author, and anything else I thought would fit nicely with the rest. I appreciate you listening to Cognitive Revolution, and I genuinely hope that you get something out of these conversations. If you do, I have no doubt some of these books will also be of interest to you. Instead of asking for money to support this podcast through Patreon or some other service, I'm asking you to buy a book. My book lists are hosted through bookshop.org. If you're in the US or UK, you can buy a book on my list, or actually any available book, and 10% of your purchase goes to supporting this podcast. I really don't want to have, quote, bonus episodes for paying supporters or anything like that. I'd much rather have all my content available, but still find a win-win where both myself and the listener can benefit. You get the book, I get the support. I think it's a pretty good deal. You can find my list at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash lowercase cognitive revolution. In the UK, it's uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Buying a book through these lists is the best way to support the Cognitive Revolution podcast, so please check them out and see if anything catches your eye. There's just one other thing I want to mention. You'll notice the prices on Bookshop are almost always just a bit higher than they are on Amazon. There's no doubt that Amazon is going to have the best prices on just about everything, and especially when you're looking at books. It can be tempting to always order through them. No doubt it's hard to resist from time to time, but one of the reasons I'm using Bookshop for my book lists is simply that it's not Amazon. Every time you buy a book on Amazon, that's another accumulated inch toward the growth of Amazon and the demise of small bookstores. I'm not going to go into all of them here, but there's lots of arguments against buying from Amazon. I know it's tempting with the price and delivery and all of that, but it's important to do what you can to stave off the creeping authority Amazon has over everything we consume. So please support local bookstores, support this show, check out bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Thanks for listening. And so, and so the idea was, you know, and this I think is maybe a theme through the kinds of decisions I've made and maybe what is, what's of interest for your show is I felt like that was the harder choice in, in a sense, because th this was going to be a group of scholars who were wholly unsympathetic to everything I've done, like for the last two and a half years, right? I completely dug in, spent, you know, two and a half years just working on a research project, you know, that was dedicated to understanding like Freud and, and Husserl, who's, you know, Heidegger's teacher, and then Brentano's, Husserl's teacher, and then, you know, um, and Heidegger and, you know, uh, the context in Hegel and the context in Kant. Like I, but basically it was 100% continental. And um, the idea to go to a program that was 100% analytical and, and really to invest in that as like the other side of the training um, seemed to me really hard. Uh, and, um, and I just, you know, part of the idea of like building out your intellectual capacities. What, what can you do? You know, what's the value of these other approaches? Um, and ultimately what turns out to be true because that's what philosophers care about. Um, so that's why I went there. 
Um, and it was great because I, I went up discovering this whole other thing, which is that I really love to work on, you know, computational models. Um, and I went up joining this research lab that was building this technology, which didn't really, you know, it hadn't really gotten any traction yet. It was called NetLogo, um, which has now become this extremely popular tool for modeling complex systems. At the time, it was just kind of a, a, a sort of demo that they were building and working on and trying to flesh out. Um, and I joined the lab and started working on on those kinds of problems, which is something that Dennett was working on and that I was thinking about, which was the evolution of cooperation um, and engages sort of fundamental issues in, in philosophy like altruism. Um, but it also engages like fundamental issues in evolutionary biology, right? And then also interestingly, fundamental issues in like social science, which is, you know, what is cooperation, what sustains cooperation, but all from different perspectives. So it was this kind of nice problem because it kind of situated me in the, in the intersection of all these different um, fields. And so uh, it was kind of a wonderful time because I was like really internalizing this new approach. I was like, you know, starting to sort of really believe that Ross and, and Quine and <laughs> Putnam had something to say that I hadn't learned before. Um, and, you know, in that spirit, getting into, involved in Wittgenstein as well, um, sort of really internalizing that, that picture of, of philosophy. Um, and, you know, computational modeling and, and this other sort of thing was something kind of a weird thing I did on, on the side for fun. You know, it wasn't like my day job, which was philosophy. It was just kind of this this um, um, hobby, really. Were you good enough um, at the math when you started doing that? Yeah, and I'd always been, you know, since I was young and, and you know, um, had done all of the, you know, the, the college courses early when I was in high school and had moved through uh, um, into working in a, I think when I was doing my undergrad in uh, um and writing on Heidegger, I, I actually had taken a job at a software firm locally, just as a way of kind of playing, you know, writing writing code and learning like Java was just invented, the web was just invented, you know, we, we built a major web app, right? So it was just kind of an exciting time to be involved in the kind of technical, logical space. Um, but again, I just thought of that as kind of a weird side thing I did, like for entertainment, you know, but philosophy was like my job. And so um, what, what was the moment when you're like, okay, enough of the philosophy is day job. I want sociology as <laughs> day job. Um, it was when I went to, after I, I finished um, uh, um, at Tufts, I took a year at the Brookings Institution. And I um, moved into a PhD program at Johns Hopkins in philosophy and um and then basically court hooked up with some um, researchers from Hopkins who had a center at the, um, and Peyton Young is there at Oxford, he's in Nuffield. Um, and he was, he became kind of my mentor and brought me into the Brookings Institution. And um, he's an economist. And, uh, and I sort of saw what they were doing, which is let's see, uh, intuitions. And I, th I just was blown away that you could do that. <laughs> it wasn't just, you know, cool models of the evolution of cooperation to ask like philosophical questions. These were like powerful, impactful intuitions that like, you know, congressmen would think about based on these little agent-based models. And working there while I was, you know, starting my moving from the, you know, the master's at Tufts into the PhD program at, at Johns Hopkins. And, um, uh, and I remember the, fo the folks at Brookings sat me down one day and said, you know, are you having fun? And I was like, yeah, this is 
you know, this is playtime. This is fantastic. I, enjoy, I was working on like four different models and we were writing papers and none of it, of course, anything philosophers do for a living, just so you, just so you know. So if you want to, if this is where you want to go, this is what you want to do, you might consider switching PhDs. Um, and I did a summer program at the Santa Fe Institute. And this is where the, the kind of the path becomes a little windy and twisty. And the Santa Fe Institute, for those who don't know, is this like premier center for complex systems. And they had, they, they've started diversifying. They have a bunch of different summer programs now. But at the time they had like this one preeminent summer program, which was like this month long, um, you know, geek camp where everyone would just come and kind of play with con complex systems models. And um, it was really, it was interdisciplinary, but if you, you know, but by interdisciplinary, they meant like physics, right? So it was like the physics of biology, the physics of chemistry, the physics of, um, uh, in some sense, economics, the physics of um, sociology. And it turned out that that, that year, um, that summer for me was like, I'm developing projects with evolutionary biologists on like the evolution of neural networks. I went up developing uh, other projects on speciation. It was just like this free for all math camp. Um, with like top PhD students from around the world. It was just phenomenally exciting. Um, and remember, I was still a PhD student in philosophy at the time. And so that was really a moment where I kind of came to terms with the fact that if I was, if I was gonna do this for real, I was gonna have to you know, um, switch my thinking about what, what I was gonna do for a career and that you probably should do the most fun thing you can think of. <laughs> uh, and so for me, that was gonna be thinking through you know, these kinds of questions of society um, in the, like this new kind of fundamental way with these new methods and then, you know, with the rigor that modeling allows and with the sort of expectations that we can do some like really productive science here. And that actually was consistent with what I was internalizing at, at Tufts, right, in the analytic program because the, you know, Quine's famous line is that, you know, philosophy is a handmaid into the sciences. Um, and that was, of course, not, <laughs> it's not the continental view. But really internalizing that at Tufts was, you know, Dan Dennett has a very scientific take on philosophical problems. Um, and basically was trying to shut down certain philosophical questions by saying, look, we can resolve these scientifically now. Um, and that that's big, right? Because it means that the division conceptually and also administratively between like what a philosophy department is and what, what like, let's say a um, cognitive psychology department is or a linguistics department, those lines are blurred. And if you can answer a question empirically, it's no longer a philosophical question. You can actually, you know, answer it and address it. Now you're in the domain of science. You're talking about like statistical tests and p-values. You're not talking about like principal, you know, thought experiments. And so that kind of blending of the space, like really at, at Tufts kind of awoke me to the fact that um, we could do so, social science, sociology that way too. We could look at the sort of nature of society, the sort of fundamental problems of society that have been around since like Hume and Hobbes and think about them in ways that were like principled and scientific and could actually answer certain questions and open up new ones. Um, and so, yeah, that time at the Santa Fe Institute really shifted my thinking. Um, and Steve Strogatz's book, which was the, you know, the chaos and nonlinear dynamics textbook, was like the Bible at the Santa Institute. Like everyone, everything, every top that came back to that book. Um, and it just so happened he was he had starting a PhD program at Cornell in nonlinear dynamics and complex systems, where people would apply from different sub-departments. So you'd come in from, you know, as a physicist or through applied math or through chemistry or through biology, and then, you know, be in this complex systems program, but through some home department. Um, 
And, you know, sociology had a connection with that department. Economics didn't. So I applied to a sociology PhD program because I felt like that would be a natural place to have a relationship like with a complex systems group, which felt more familiar to me, and then be able to ground it in this sort of this field of sociology. And that, you know, is very much how, how sociology came into being. It was like through this kind of conceptual exploration of like the specific way I wanted to get into these specific topics. And Cornell was the only place, I think in the world at that point, that had that kind of, um, that program and that potential. Hmm. Yeah. And then, so, okay, so that puts you in the general vicinity of what you go on to make your, your career out of. Um, and then it, it seems like one of the early and biggest successes in that, or like a flagship component of that is your 2007 paper on complex contagions and the weakness of long ties, which is, of course, um, you know, an allusion to uh, social network. Uh, theory of Mark Granovetter and strength of weak ties and that sort of stuff and that long-standing sort of conceptual framework in sociology. So can you say uh, a little bit about what the genesis of that paper was, how, how you went from like, okay, now I'm, I know the space that I'm going to be working in. How did you get to the, what, what became a, a foundational idea in your, in your, you know, sort of work on it? Yeah, there, there are kind of two things that are happening simultaneously. One is the field of network science is kind of coming into being. Um, and that's happening like in 9, 2000, 2001. Um, so I start grad school in 2002. And um, most of these discoveries are basically in my first my first year of grad school. I just, you know, I, I start working on a project and it's just, you know, it just kind of felt like a, it was a very special time. It was just, you know, discovery after discovery after discovery. And part of what was happening was um, I was bringing this, you know, the conceptual apparatus of how I'd been thinking about kind of the, the philosophical questions I was thinking about, and then also the, the new methods um, from network science and also from, you know, the sort of computational strategy of modeling society um, and uh, integrating them into this, you know, this tradition in sociology. So I had never seen, you know, Granovetter stuff. I'd never seen any of this stuff. And so I was coming to it from like a very different background than I think you would if you came out of an undergrad in sociology. Um, and I think that's one of the cool things about a program like that is they knew that and that was what they were interested in was what that would what that might produce. Um, and uh, two things happen. One is that the reading, the sort of strategy intellectually in sociology, the way I was getting into it was different um, noticeably from uh, the way that um, the courses and the readings were designed in the complex systems classes I was taking. So I remember kind of doing these two things, two like programs simultaneously. And uh, in the complex systems courses, basically we read a paper and the paper would have a model, like a you know well worked out theory, like typically a physics model, and then a set of data. And then it would provide, you know, it provide their statistical tests, but largely it was like, here's the qualitative intuition. Here's the big new insight. And then here's that intuition, you know, represented in, you know, some data set and some were, you know, population dynamics, right? Um, predator prey models, but some were, you know, questions about um, cooperation, but like rendered in terms of like bandwidth sharing on the internet, right? And, they, but they were all just, there was just all this creativity, right? All this like thoughtfulness about like, where do the data meet this theory? Um, and the vast majority of work in the kind of uh, mathematical computational sociology was models. People building lots and lots of models of society and trying to think about where you might get data, but it just wasn't like you could study, you know, data from society, right? It was a, a different age. Um, 
So there was always this kind of thing at the end where you want to get tests and it just didn't exist. Um, and I was working on a project right away, you know, out, out of the gate, my first week when I started grad school on witch hunts and how uh, witch hunts spread. Basically, the, the question was kind of a nice uh, paradox, um, which is it makes sense when you look at the spread of like, you know, conformity with um, uh, totalitarian regimes by subjects who don't agree with the regime. Um, that makes sense if there's punishment, you know, for subjects because they conform as a way of avoiding punishment, right? And that, okay, that makes sense. Um, but then there's this further question, which is when we look at things like the communist witch hunt in the U.S. Um, or uh, even certain kinds of behaviors that, you know, show up in um, other kinds of cultures and also show up in academics too, where people not only conform with these sorts of norms they don't agree with, but they actually enforce them. They force other people to conform with something they don't privately believe in. Um, it's kind of falsification of beliefs, but this sort of falsification of enforcement is confusing. Like, why would you punish people for doing something that you don't believe in anyway? Um, and so we developed this kind of um, psychological theory of it. And this was with my, my, my uh, advisor, Mike Macy, and, and colleague, Rob Wheeler. And we, you know, they had sort of worked on this problem and brought me on to sort of address this bigger question, which is, okay, we've got this sort of theory of um, how witch hunts spread, but like, how do they actually spread? Because none of this, none of these are actually working out from a modeling point of view. It doesn't really make sense how this is going to ever take off because people are just going to say, well, this is stupid and not do it. Um, and this is where I brought like a network's lens to it. I thought, okay, well, this actually does make sense. If you think about it from the perspective of people enforcing this sort of locally with just their peer neighborhood, they don't know what's going on in the rest of the world, but they know that they're sort of subject to this local social pressure. Right. And we can see this sort of growing process. Um, and then I started discovering the way that networks operate in this kind of process. And it was weird. It wasn't what you would expect. And so this is what this is what's kind of like when you start pulling on the thread. And this is what happens a lot in grad school. You start to notice something that doesn't quite make sense. Um, and you just start to pull on thread of it and say, OK, is this is this a bigger idea or is this just this weird thing with witch hunts? Um, and that's where I started to kind of look at, you know, the, the strength of weak ties intuition and start to look at like data in the civil rights movement, data on you know, the women's suffrage movement, data on the spread of unionization, data on, right? Like all these other cases where we're looking at these sort of collective um, action problems that aren't necessarily, or even witch hunts, they're sometimes, you know, for the public good, but they all have this quality that people sort of do them together and they sort of look to other people and making decisions. Um, and what wound up happening is I was building this sort of, you know, more and more general model of like they could incorporate all these different kinds of social processes, but had like the same kernel of, um, I would say, the description of individual behavior and the description of the network dynamics. And I kept finding the same result over and over again. And the same result was like contradicting the, you know, what would later become, and I think at that time already was, um, the most dominant and most cited paper in the field of sociology, which is the strength of weak ties. So there was like this very clear, powerful networks intuition, which in many ways was then, you know, generalized to um, computer science and all the work in physics and applied mathematics and networks had relied in some way on the strength of weak ties intuition and the kind of small world idea that like these long ties were the essence of network structure and were the key for spreading. Um, and I was just finding like volumes of data. Um, and it was really important to me that they were across different domains, you know, across different topics that were that were showing 
that that intuition just like didn't seem to work out. And so this is what gave rise to this sort of really pushing on this kind of, this question of, is there a, a new intuition here? Is there something, like, what is it that we're missing? And to my mind, this is like, and this is where the sort of the little bit about St. John's becomes interesting because I had in the back of my head this kind of model of like how science moves from like one set of ideas or intuitions to another set of ideas or intuitions. And it's like the key is anomalies. The key is like, and that's what you see throughout the history going back to the Greeks is like there's these things that just don't work, right? When we go from Ptolemy to Copernicus, it's because there were these like weird little behaviors. The planets moved one way and then they moved backwards. That just didn't make sense, right? Um, and so, and, and that was, you know, interesting, exciting, and also really confusing. So I felt like there's this big anomaly here and why, why is nobody talking about it, right? Like, why are we not more worried that it doesn't seem like all these things line up with our, with our sort of best theory of how networks and society operates? Um, and this is what gave rise to kind of this general sort of insight into, well, there's really two different kinds of contagions here. There's really two different ways of thinking about spreading. And what's most profound about them is that they they sort of operate not just differently, but they operate like in the exact opposite way, right? And there's no, there's no existing intuition <laughs> that gives you a reference point for that. There's nothing saying, well, these things should operate differently, but also in exactly the opposite way. And this is where the... Um, uh, the sort of complex systems training. And I really, you know, this was like this first year of grad school. It's just like everything was happening all at once. But the complex system training was very helpful because now I had developed this, you know, this sort of clear intuition and I knew how to sort of formalize it in terms of like a phase transition and like what that sort of dynamics of discontinuity would look like and formally to represent it as sort of as a, a, um, a sort of a nonlinear process within the sort of uh, Strogatz framework. Um, and then it, it sort of set me on this hunt, which was, okay, now what's the right data set? Because now I've got a theory, how do I test it? And it took a couple of years, as you know, like the, the first papers didn't come out to 2007. So it took like years to get those papers to the point where, you know, I tested all these different robustness conditions. I explored all these different network topologies. And remember in, in the early 2000s, it was like every week there were 40 new papers on networks, you know, and like, um, some of the stuff on small worlds was getting big and some of the stuff on scale-free networks was getting big. So every time we prepare to submit the paper, there'd be like this new network result. And it was like, okay, run a whole new suite of tests with like with those networks and with those quite, right? And so the original 2007 paper, which started out as like a four-page physics paper, turned into like a 35-page sociology paper, which is like a, this large suite of robustness tests. Because it was like, okay, we're learning all this stuff about networks, so let's put each new thing we learn into this model and build like this really general argument about how networks operate and see if anything breaks it. But, you know, it was weird because each new thing we put in there actually made the model stronger. It was, you know, the results became, you know, um, tighter and more robust the more of these sorts of different features you put into networks. And of course, this gives you some scientific confidence that you're really onto something. Um, and then that, you know, all of that, when I finished the PhD, then is really what set me onto the methodological path that has you know occupied me for the last decade, which is you know can we ever test a theory like this? Um, because if we can't, if we can't test the theory that there's some you know underlying pattern in society that pattern shifts that you're going to see basically the exact opposite result, qualitatively different dynamics in terms of like collective behavior, social movement, social change, innovation diffusion, right? 
Um, if you couldn't change it or test a theory like that, you know, the question is, well, what's the value of a theory like that? It's great to say I'm building models to generate intuitions, but intuitions for what? What's the empirical reference here? Because we can't, we don't know what we're talking about if we can't build, you know, an empirical test or even imagine what an empirical test would look like. Um, so and, maybe maybe instead yeah. of uh, you know fleshing out and for the detail, we want to spend the last five minutes sort of transitioning from that to the book. Because uh, I still want to uh, ask. Sure, but that's kind of where we are, right? So that's, I think I think we've gotten to the point where they're <laughs> yeah. like, here is the the um, yeah. the sort of intellectual foundation uh, of the, the 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 book that uh, you 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 recently come out with. Yeah. Uh, and I guess one thing I'm curious about is that so you know you've written a, uh, uh, in addition to all the academic work, you've written now a, a trade book, right, which is for the general reader. And the classic trade book on this subject is Malcolm Gladwell's 1999 Tipping Points, uh, which is largely based off of the, okay, look, here is the strength of weak ties. Uh, you know, here is, let's really like dig into this metaphor of uh, ideas spreading like viruses. So I, I, I'm curious just, you know, to hear, that's something you specifically say in the book. Ideas do not spread like viruses, uh, uh, mainly because the person accepting them has uh, a volitional ability to accept or decline the idea. They have to decide, like, okay, yes, I'm going to adopt this idea for myself, which if I'm going to contract, you know, uh, the novel coronavirus, I don't necessarily have to give assent, uh, you know, for that to happen. So, yeah, could you say a little bit about... You know, did, was that was the um, tipping point something that you referenced and say like, hey, I'm consciously going to try and um, argue against this, or was it just by virtue of arguing against the academic premises of that book? Well, the tipping point came out. Remember, even before I started grad school, right. um, so you know, I knew about You're it. You're still a and... philosopher, I think, when tipping point came out. <laughs> right back back in the days when I was a philosopher, right? Um, and uh, what was um, interesting about it was that when I finally read it was actually during my first year of grad school after I'd read Grant and Better. Um, and, uh, you know, like a lot of academics, you read stuff that's in a popular um, lens and you say, oh, well, this is a watered down version. You know, he's not really giving credit because really the ideas here are Grant and Better's and so forth. Um, but, you know, what's I think very interesting about a book like The Tipping Point is that it takes kind of concepts that are, I think, hard for most people to wrap their head around, you know, like you know, social structure is invisible. Networks are, what, 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 what the hell is a network really? You know, um, and uh, it makes it really concrete with stories, right? And gives people an intuition. Now, one of the, um, I would say the cautionary tales with a book like that is that in order to, it's very challenging to do that in a way that's um, fidelis to the science. Um, and I think he did it, I think he did do it in a way that was fidelis to the science at the time. And, you know, what, what predates um, the tipping point is like all the work by like, you know, um, Elihu Katz and Paul Lazarsfeld on opinion leaders um, and, you know, all the work through the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s um, by all of the people, Milgram and, and Isola de Poole and um, Solomonov and right, Rappaport, all the work by all the people thinking about like these network dynamics. Um, and what I, what I do in the, a trade book, you know, a popular book, which, you know, you don't really do in an academic book or academic text was able to kind of give some of this intellectual history, right? Like the idea of opinion leaders has been around for almost a century, right? We've kind of been using it intuitively. And what Granovetter did was he kind of moved it in this way, but it's really interesting because it helps us to understand society differently. And so I located all of that. But what Gladwell had done is he said, 
okay, there's a bunch of social science here, but like what I'm going to do is turn it into this idea of the law of the few, right? There's a key people, they're super well connected. If you could just get to them, they spread to everyone else. And he doesn't need to talk about networks or topologies or physics or anything. He can just give that intuition. And the nice thing about intuition is that it kind of resonates with the way we think about the world. We all have this kind of like this great person, kind of the hero archetype model of like how things work. And it kind of plays into that with a networks he spin, right? And this is where I feel like that's where my work moves in a totally different direction, which is to say, you know, yeah, that is in fact how simple contagions like viruses and information work. But for complex contagions, the intuition is profoundly different. It really isn't those special people playing a key role. It's these like these locations that don't seem important at all, that are really quite important for this sort of new idea getting traction. Um, so that it wasn't like the book was written at all, you know, to frame against Gladwell. Gladwell is more just part of the intellectual history leading up to this new science, right? Because my work comes after him. Um, but it also provides kind of a useful way of talking about it because he gave he gave some useful language around it that was narrative based instead of, you know, scientifically based. That's great. And I, I mean, God, what a fantastic contribution to this lineage that you're talking about, both in terms of, you know, the you know, the the time that you were lucky to just get in there and be, be get into this stuff at, at really the right time. That's incredible. Uh, and then now I'll be able to say, look, here's what we've done over the past, you know, however many you want to call it, uh, 15 years. And uh, that's really awesome. I think this is a, a great contribution to to that lineage. And it's it's, it's super cool to see it uh, played out in this book, which I think you did a great job on. So Thanks. It was fun to write. <laughs> yeah. Um, great. Well, uh, I'll let you go here so you can uh, uh, get um, you know squared away for your next meeting. But uh, Damon, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Cody. That's it for this week on Cognitive Revolution. As always, thank you for listening. If you want to support this show, you can do so by purchasing a book at bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. Or if you're in the UK, uk.bookshop.org slash shop slash cognitive revolution. If you enjoy the show, I'd also appreciate it if you would consider subscribing through whichever platform you'd be listening through, or by leaving a review on iTunes. These numbers are one of the main drivers of bringing new listeners to the show, so it really helps a lot. If you want to keep up with my writing, the best way to do so is to subscribe to my Substack at codycommerce.substack.com. It's free to sign up, and I try to put out at least one really high-quality, long-form article each month in addition to whatever else I may have written. If you want to connect with me directly, you can do so on Twitter or Instagram at Cody Commerce or by sending me an email at cody.commerce.writing at gmail.com. Finally, if you want to find out more about me and my work, you can do so at codycommerce.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.